Graphic Nature acknowledges the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which we record the show and pay our respects to the Elders past, present and future and extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this podcast. Due to the graphic nature of this program, listener discretion is advised. Fighting for what's right, for justice, that's what a hero does. It is my opinion, without any reasonable doubt and without any reservation, that comic books are an important contributing factor in many cases of juvenile delinquency. Comic books are pure evil. Satan himself condemns our children to the fiery depths of hell. How a particular tale can come to life in the mind of a reader is endlessly fascinating to me. We have found that all comic books have a very bad effect on teaching the youngest children the proper reading techniques. This balloon print pattern prevents that. I am not a villain. I am a victim. A victim of a society that tortured me. Vengeance will be mine. It'll be mine. It'll be mine. Welcome to Graphic Nature, a fortnightly podcast exploring the inspiring world of comic books, the culture that supports it, the creators, publishers, and people behind the printed pages and digital screens pushing the medium on into the future in Australia and the world. I'm Zoran Ilyevsky. On this episode, we have comics creator Gary Proudly in the studio. Hi, Gary. Hello. Welcome to Graphic Nature. How are you going? I'm great, thank you. How are you? Not too bad, not too bad. Uh, how about we get stuck right into it? Yeah, absolutely. How did, uh, how did your... What's your origin story, Gary? That's probably a, just an easier question. Well, I got my, my first comic when I was about 10 years old. It was uh, Fantastic Four, 355. 355? 355. It was sandwiched right between um, two fairly long runs, uh, right after Walt Simonson and right before... DeFalco and Ryan took over, so it was probably a, an issue they had in a drawer just to fill in. I wish I remembered. I, that's amazing that you remember the, the, the one comic that blew your mind. Yeah, that was the first one, and that sort of started it all. It was a, a thing story, and after that, I pestered my dad to bring me a comic every week. <laughs> um, so not, not, go to the, not go to the shop with him? but No, no. So what it was is my father used to bring me home something every Friday afternoon. Um, usually a chocolate bar or something, but that one Friday afternoon he happened to bring me a comic. Wow! And um, every so he, single week since then. And if he didn't bring the comic book, yeah, he would have <laughs> got a tantrum, I'm sure. But I mean, like you know, if you were to go back and then you know someone, some stranger, time traveler, would turn around and say, "Hey, maybe don't pick, don't get the book. Yeah, get him a chocolate bar. My instead. life would have gone in a very different direction, <laughs> I'm sure." <laughs> and and uh, and so did that then kind of manifest in in collecting and stuff later on in life? Uh, yeah, I, l- I collected them, um, read them voraciously, and then went a bit sensible as a teenager and went and did computer programming at university. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, went out into the real world and did that. And Interesting that you say sensible. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> theoretically, a career in computer programming should seem like a good idea, shouldn't it? Yeah. Um, but it was a terrible, terrible idea. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I hated every minute of that. Could that have spurred you on a little more to uh, end up actually creating something of your own? Yeah, I think it did. Um, so my, my first job as a computer programmer out of uni was terrible. I took a, a pay cut from working at Red Rooster. Holy shit. Yeah, uh, to work in this 
as a computer programmer. I did that for about a year, and the boss wanted to cut every corner that was possible. Whereas I like, if I'm doing a job, I'd like to do it properly. So I was working late nights, I was working weekends, I was, I was, you know, knocking myself out for this guy. And got to about 12 months and I found out that he hadn't paid a single cent into my superannuation. Oh, great. Which was, you was know. Was it the 90s? No, no, this was sort of early 2000s. Yeah, right. After the dot com, uh, dot com bubble burst. So I, I was a bit disillusioned with the whole thing and uh, quit and thought, what do I want to do in my life? I want to make comics. I thought, that's silly. You can't do that. <laughs> I'll open a comic book store instead. Oh, is, wow. A terrible, terrible way to What store did you open? So I opened this uh, little hole in the wall in Fremantle, Western Australia, Mm -hmm. uh, called the Comic Box, and it was an unmitigated disaster. I was just... Why? Bad. Uh, Location, location, location. Right. I thought I'd save a little money on rent and be off the... the, um, Big track. Yeah, sort of uh, a little away from the the cafe strip, as they call it, in Fremantle, Mm -hmm. and that was a bad idea. It's hard to get people to come to you. You need to be where the people are. Yeah. Um, that was the main reason why that failed. So that lasted about 18 months. It's still a good run. It's it's not a bad run, but I, I think any sort of comic store that starts off with the idea of I can't create comics, I'll sell them instead, is probably bound to fail. <laughs> Your heart wasn't in it really, was it? That's basically what it comes down to. Mm. And people who work in, in comics retail, they have to have their heart in it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I worked in a shop for many years, in the two thousands and the and the nineties, mm-hmm. and it was it was strange to see how how it changed over over, a, you know, a couple of decades, mm. uh, and how how different it is now. Yeah. Well, for 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 most people, like people who have been here in Melbourne who have seen uh, a store like. Um, or start pop up versus all the others that were around. Yeah. You know, alternate worlds kind of went away and Comics R Us is still there, but it's, you know, a shell of its former self, mm-hmm. um, unfortunately. Uh, and, th- you know, and, and I was surprised to find out that there's there's a few that have popped up in the interim, but some have closed down. Yeah, the, the little ones pop up and disappear. Yeah. And, and you would think, you know, having your finger on the pulse like you and I would, we'd know about them all, but... It's just so hard getting... Do we really have our finger on the pulse, well, Gary? <laughs> more, more than, than your average punter who no, walks suppose. down the street. Yeah, you know. yeah. Um, but it's just so hard for, for comic stores to get their name out there and, and get people to notice them. I, yeah, I, I think that's where a lot of the times you know, having a central location in the city is probably the most, uh, the most advantageous. But again, it also comes down to, you know, the comic buying community has, has grown significantly and so that's why it was I, I was actually quite shocked that uh classic comic closed down not too long ago a couple of years ago yeah yeah you um, and both. yeah i was i was really surprised and i would have thought that you know all-star was a great experiment in the sense that it was a new shop like everybody else that was around has been around for 20 years mm. uh at least yeah and uh and so they popped up and they've They've pretty much smashed it out of the park. They did. They started doing things differently. Yeah, uh, and which which was which, to be honest, from my perspective, having worked in that in the retail comics industry for a long time, I was actually surprised no one had ever done that before. Mm, yeah, I mean, it, it was it was money on the table waiting to be picked up. Yeah, I mean, sure, it's easy for us to say that now with hindsight. Oh, of, course, of course, without you know doing all the hard work that the all-star <laughs> guys did to get where they are. Yeah, absolutely. But, but yeah, 
with with the benefit of hindsight, it was obvious that it was going to work, wasn't it? So, what, what was it called again? Uh, the comic box. The comic box. Did you take? Was there anything that you took away from that experience? Well, one thing I did take away is while I was in the comic box, uh, the publisher of an Australian comics company came in mm-hmm. and tried to sell me some of his first book, and you know, being a, a comics retailer with an Australian creator coming in, I sort of did the best I could to stifle my eye roll and. Thought, all right, I'll I'll buy some, and had a, had a flick through. And after he left, I really read it, and then I read it again, and then I read it again. It was really good. It was uh, the first book put out by Gestalt Publishing. Well, there you go. Yeah, um, I bought I think five or ten for my shelf, and only four or nine made it to the shelf because one of those went home with me. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's always kind of surprising. It's it's really I suppose it's really hard, uh, and I've mentioned this before that when you're when you've grown up or you're so accustomed to a certain style mm. of book or you know or, or publisher it's really hard to kind of deviate and you really have to push beyond that to mm. look at to look at something different and i know for me it took many years for me to turn around and go uh you know i'm going to i'm going to try the that i'm going to try that zine or i'm going to i'm going to try that weird comic that only has 10 pages rather than the regular 22 or yeah. I'm looking for something new or I'm looking for to be knocked off my socks or knocked off my perch or you know yeah, you know yeah. what I'm saying I know exactly what <laughs> you mean uh, and 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 having an Australian coming in your story is not unique so many people used to come into the shop who were saying well I'm a comics creator and everybody would go yeah sure yeah well, I mean, the the barrier for entry getting into comics is quite small, especially when you're talking about zines. Yeah. And I've read some astounding zine comics that'll knock me off my socks and, and stay with me for years to come. Yeah. And I've said, and I've also read some real dreck. Unfortunately, the ratio seems to be slightly towards the dreck, which is why when you're working as a, a retailer... Of course. ...and you're working on razor-thin margins, you sort of half expect... Yeah, the worst out of the comics that are coming in, which is which is sad, but it's unfortunately true. It is, um, but once you find sort of a, a local comic that you believe in, they're the easiest things in the world to sell. Um, I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. I agree because it's it's that one thing of you have access to this person, you mm. have access to it, it's you know, and particularly if they're grounded in in Australia, it's an Australian story. Uh, it's it's you're right. It's absolutely easy to sell. It's yeah. just like look at this. It's yeah. got hey look at that it's got Brunswick in it yeah exactly <laughs> and know? and somebody can tell if you're if you're doing a sales pitch or someone can tell if you really enjoyed the story yourself yeah. and you're you're selling it that way so yeah that was when you first met uh, Wolfgang that that's correct that's correct. the first time I met Wolfgang my comic store failed and I had a few nothing jobs for a little while and I thought, no, I still want to really do this. And my logic was it's not as much what you know, it's who you know. So I I typed up a letter and I sent it off to Wolfgang as sort of offering my services as an intern. And um, I found out later that's one of the very few letters like that that he got that wasn't riddled with spelling errors and or odd. He's had some odd letters offering <laughs> I can imagine interns, yeah. um, more than one occasion people offering sexual favors wow which is odd because it's not that difficult to get into comics mm. but yeah those <laughs> ones go in the bin fair enough fair enough yeah 
Yeah, um, right. So yeah, I started as a as an intern at Gestalt. And, and what kind of stuff were you doing there. as an intern? Uh, well, as well, on my very first day, not not that this was typical of, of internship. Um, Wolfgang gave me two scripts. One was not very good, mm-hmm. and the other one was the first issue of the Deep. Wow! So it was a test. It was tell me what you think of these two, and thankfully I passed it. At the <laughs> end, I sort of tried to do the diplomatic. Well, there are some things we can work on with this one, but this is great. If you're not already, you should think about publishing this one. Yeah. yeah. Um. So yeah, I passed that first test on the first day. Thankfully, I'm actually surprised. Like this is the first time I'm, I'm hearing. That uh, you know, and how did the internship work at, at Gestalt? I mean, were they? What what year is this? Uh, so this would have been about two thousand ten ish. Okay, right. So they would have been around for a little while. They they, they yeah. sort of existed at this point. I think Flinch was the most recent book they'd published at that point. Right. Um, I did my research. I went out and bought almost all the things they'd published. So. Character sketches, Val's, Waldo's Hawaiian Holiday, Flinch, maybe the example at that point too. Mm-hmm. It's hard to recall exactly. Made sure I knew the product. Yep. Made sure I sort of presented myself as a professional. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it wasn't like a um, a formal internship in that you know I was getting credit for a uni course or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was almost like I wanted a crash course in the industry. Like a volunteer. Kind yeah, of. Yeah, 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 that's more what it was. And I, I made sure that that was clear in the letter that I wasn't looking for um, course credits or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then intern work. I mean, there's a lot of, I guess you could say, scut work involved in any business. So uh, it ranged from really menial, like... Um, Putting dust jackets on covers of the of vowels. Done that. Yes. Uh, contacting retailers in the U.S. Uh, proofreading, proofreading again, proofreading a third time because <laughs> you always, did work for a publisher. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's always always a typo when you go to press, and anything I could do to avoid that. Oh, absolutely. My biggest bugbear with it though is. Um, Sometimes we use American spelling. Sometimes we use Australian spelling. It's very hard to notice those words that look like they're spelt right, but yeah. they're spelt in the wrong version. Of Z and the right. S. Yeah, those ones. <laughs> There's some yeah really obscure ones out there too. Mm. When did uh, when did things kind of start turning? Or did you pitch? Uh, I pitched. I, I was it a hey? Do you want to just kind of hey? How do you feel about this? Th- there was a few. I the first one I pitched actually worked out yeah right so i mean i had that one in my pocket for years and i knew it was it was good it ended up being proud heart okay um which gary challoner illustrated um which for those who don't know the iliad uh the story with achilles achilles is homosexual but in almost any version of that story that gets told nowadays that gets left out (laughs) so it's just a retelling of the iliad framed as a love story yeah so Patroclus and Achilles are the lead in my version of this yep. story. Um, so that one went well. Started writing that, that went well, and then pitched other things for years, and they all went terribly badly. Oh no, it's you know, well um, the pitches went bad. Yeah, the pitches. Oh, went right, bad. right, okay. Oh, I've written a lot of wreck between the original Proudheart pitch and and it actually coming out. 
I suppose though that's you know that's just par for the course. Isn't that's it, really? exactly par for the course. Writing is a skill like any other, and you've got to develop it mm. in the same way that an artist will get better through years of practice. I just needed years of practice. Yeah, yeah. Then there's Talgard. Talgard, yes. Lessons learned in that book. A lot of lessons learned. One of which is that it's very easy to get an artist to do four pages for you. <laughs> a lot harder to get an artist to do 140 pages for <laughs> you. I wanted to ask you about that, yeah. Yeah. And it was just as simple as that, just contacting people and saying, hey, do you want to do four pages? Yeah. Um, I mean, they're all paid jobs, so yeah. that makes it a lot easier. Well, who doesn't like cash? Exactly. <laughs> artists definitely do. <laughs> Starving get, ones in particular. Yeah, comic artists don't get offered it that often. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things in Sword and Sorcery that I wanted to play with. It's... Um, so for those that don't know, Talgard is a, a sword and sorcery book where the protagonist is intelligent. He's not just a, a barbarian who cut things in half. He'll think I about actually, it. I mean, reading, I didn't even think, I didn't even click that he, you know, he was a barbarian in, in most of the depictions. He's just, he's just a really smart swordsman. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that that's what it is. It's uh, um, he's like a James Bond for sword and sorcery. Yeah, that's that's a very generous way of describing <laughs> it. So thank you. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. Well, in in a lot of the a lot of the in a lot of the kind of short stories you got in here, which in fact were really good and and were really tight. Like, don't get me wrong, there were a couple of exceptional uh, stories that I thought were really good. Uh, and uh, the reason I say James Bond is the I can't remember which one it was. The one where he gets his mate out of a jam who's been held and tortured. Uh, uh, the Alethiomancer. Yeah, I was trying to figure I was actually going to ask you how to pronounce that too. Yes. As a character or as a, as a character going, uh, I'm going to, you know, it displays forethought mm. because he's going, I'm going in this realm, I'm going into this uh, knowing full well uh, that my buddy, it's going to be my buddy and, you know, only James Bond does that kind of yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's how I looked at it anyway. Oh, thank you. You're very welcome. Um, yeah, so, I mean, the fun thing as well is four-page stories. You can you can play with a fun idea. You can play with a deep idea. You can do anything you want mm. and, and, and then move on to the next thing. And if something doesn't work and somebody doesn't like that particular story, it's only one of 11 in that particular yeah. volume. And how, how many were there all up? Did you, did you cherry pick or was mm, it... No, no, at the time that came out, so peeking behind the curtain. The reason the 11 were published is because I was just about to go to San Diego Comic-Con right. and I wanted to take it with me yep. as a, a finished work. The original sort of idea was to do 10 to 12. So mm -hmm. oh. at 11, I definitely yeah, hit that. the difference. Uh, I think on the next one, I'll make it a little bit longer, yep. give it a bit more of a spine. And how is it working with so many artists? To be honest, I didn't have a lot of interaction with a lot of them because they all go through the, through the editor. Wolf yeah, right. But it's been great afterwards because i don't have to say your perspective is wrong on this change that and they get to all hate wolfgang and love me so i'm, I'm very happy with that it's a pretty good deal yeah it's not bad <laughs> so where did where did telgard come from so there was a little bit of practicality of wanting to do four-page stories you need a setting that everybody understands mm -hmm. and everybody just gets sword and sorcery you can hit the ground running yep. with sword and sorcery you know, you only need to watch 10 minutes of Lord of the Rings or 10 minutes of, of Game of Thrones or 10 minutes of any Conan movie and you kind of get where you're at yeah, in the yeah. world. And you can do a lot with it. Um, you can you can use magic. You can just use humans and emotion and anything you want to do, you can more or less do in Sword and Sorcery. And just 
uh, on that point. I'm finding that in the last 10 years-ish, maybe a little longer, particularly, let's say, Hollywood, for lack of a better uh, example, have really started to understand that point of it doesn't matter what the setting is, we can still tell very humanistic stories or, or you know, allegorious stories that will connect with people. And interestingly, it wasn't until, you know, maybe the late noughties that, that a lot of TV production companies started doing that. Mm. And I think for me, although it goes further back, the one that really kind of kicked it into gear was Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. Because yeah, it was like, here's a soap opera. We're just going to put it in space with robots that look like humans and we're going to explore all this really deep shit. Mm. It's, it's absolutely a case of Hollywood catching up with us. Mm. So comics readers know that superheroes can be applied to any genre. Uh, fantasy readers know that that sword and sorcery slash sword and sandals, whichever flavour you enjoy, can be applied to any genre. Mm. If you want to set a... A political intrigue story in there you can absolutely do easily that. done that's not a problem if you want to have pure adventure and and you know damsels in distress and slay the mighty dragon you can absolutely do that too um and if you want to you know explore um, some social justice and 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 right some of the wrongs in the world by telling a story that uses allegory then yeah. you can absolutely do that there too mm. Um, so, yeah, they're finally catching up with the rest of us. <laughs> if you didn't have much connection with, with the artists, what was your main point? So you were constantly back and forth with, with the editor? Or? Uh, I, I won't say I had no contact with the artists. I, I definitely worked with them. I just didn't work with them in a, a practical sense, yeah, if right. you know what I mean. Um, certainly had discussions with artists about what the feeling was or, or what we were trying to convey in some of the stories. I mean, that, that's true for some more than others. Some of the artists in the book are, are close friends of mine as yeah, well, right. so that sort of helps. Was you there know, a style guide? And it's like, you know, this is kind of what No. Want. So So one of the things that we did do with the book is all, all the stories are coloured by Justin Randall. Mm -hmm. So in spite of the disparate pencils and ink styles of all the different creators... Justin ties it all together. So yep. it all feels like the same book. So that was one of the keys to making, I, I guess if if you want to call it a style guide, Justin Randall was our style guide. He yeah, tied it all together. Yeah, looking at all the characters and, and in some cases, I suppose my, my brain immediately wanted to, to think of continuity even though they're all separate stories. And so that was, uh, you know, and I'm only talking from my perspective reading it, uh, it, were, it, it was a little bit, wasn't too jarring, but no, it was. No, but it was where there was one story with uh, with his mentee, mm -hmm. and then there was another couple of stories, and then the mentee comes back and was just like, "And wait, is this bef is that before that, or is that after that?" And so my brain was kind of doing a couple of skips and jumps, trying to figure out. Yeah, no, look. So some of that is intentional. Okay, I, I will say we put a lot of thought into the design of Talgard. So he's got dreadlocks. He's got a beard. And his clothing is reasonably sort of simple. Mm -hmm. um, so anyone who draws it, it will look like him. Yeah, is, right. Is yeah, was what I was trying to get at. Yeah. yeah. A as for the time skips and the, the jumps and around, I quite like when stories just sort of throw you in the deep end, mm -hmm. which you kind of have to do in a four-page story. You yeah. can't... And I think I think each one actually does a great job. Like I'm, I'm not saying that 
that was the d- uh, that's like the downfall of the book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was just it was just a passing thought that I had. It was like, uh, you know, figuring out timelines because you had a, a character that appears and then appears later on mm-hmm. in a different story. But you know, and it was just my brain trying to connect it. Yeah. No. Um. So there. So there are some very small connections between stories in the in the book. Um. So in Talgard and the Death Cult, he gets uh, he walks in with an injury, a hand injury that he gets in. And I noticed uh, that one too. Yeah. 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 Um, and in in that particular story, uh, Tidral, the the apprentice, is there, but in the one where he gets the the injury, she's not. So the idea is, you want to wonder what's Tidral often doing while you while you're reading what Talgard's doing. I I, I really like the uh, the Benzen. Oh no, the Benzen story is really good. Yeah, the I thought that was really good. Trevor did an amazing job on that story. Yeah, and how how, do, how much uh, do you get any oversight into the art? So I'm assuming you would have seen the the draw, finished drawings. But was there any at any point where you kind of went, oh, can you uh, maybe usually try to get in there at, at thumbnails mm-hmm. if there's anything? But most of that goes through Wolfgang. Yeah, he's, right. he's okay. pretty on top of on top of that. Yeah, right. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And the trash hiking. Just, I just want to know for my own, for my own peace of mind, is is the new king? I'm saying new king in inverted commas. Uh, is he a dodgy? Is he dodgy? No. Okay. No, he'll come back in later though. Uh, oh, okay. I've got tentative plans for a whole graphic novel with Algard, and he'll be coming back. Which is, which leads me into another question that I yeah. want to ask. Which one? Wh- what uh, is now the next step for Talgard? Like, uh, is it? Are you going to be basing any further books on any of these stories, or are they kind of all intermingled? Or uh, yeah, they're all intermingled. So there's going to be another, at least another tome of Talgard. So mm-hmm. this one is titled Talgard Tome One. Oh, yep. um, there'll be at least another tome, possibly two, and then uh, a graphic novel, and then I'll see how I'm going from there. Nice. Because, yeah, that'll be probably 40 or 50 stories. And how was it taking this to San Diego? Yeah, it was great. Um, it's really well received. It helps that it's got beautiful production design. Which yeah, is the cover's the great. Thing. It is. Uh, Sasha Brenning did an amazing job on that. I went to him with a, a concept of what I wanted the cover to be, and it looks nothing like that. <laughs> he just went, yeah, that's great, but what about this awesome thing? I went, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> Never tell an artist what to do. They know what they're doing. Yeah. Well, especially someone like Sasha. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. Now that the book is out, it's gone out. Um, what has been? What is it? What was it received like with, with just general punters? Really well. Yeah. Um, not not uh, not that you expect it to. You sort of sit in a room and you type. And I think the first Talgard story was written sort of eighteen months before the book came out. Yeah. Um, so there's a big lag between writing something and then somebody turning up at a con and saying, hey, I really enjoyed this story. And you sort of have to pause and <laughs> mentally rewind and go, oh, that story, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, yeah, the um, song I wrote 15 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah that yeah. one, yeah. Um, it's it's a little surreal when something you've written, somebody comes and talks to you about. Mm-hmm. I'm still not over that. Hopefully I'll never, ever be over that. Because, I mean, I got into comics because I have things I want to say. Yeah. Some Talgard stories are just stab a guy, you know, get the money. Get <laughs> that's what some of them are. But there's one in there that's about the psychological effects of killing people for a job. Which was, that was a great point in, in one of the stories. And, and again, just to add to your point, 
for me, reading this was, you know, it's actually a great idea because now if you release a, a, a graphic novel, you don't need to explain anything. No, no, it's all there. It's all here. It's yeah. all here. You read this and you go, it's all law. So stab a guy, all right, so he's ruthless. Uh, and then he helps his mate out and you go, he's a very kind person. You know, and, you know, you get you get the sense of the character off the bat. Yeah, I mean, that's people as well, isn't it? Yeah. You know, Hitler liked his dogs. We'd, we'd like everyone to be one note, but, yeah. but then that's not. just not what people are. They're a lot more complex. Yeah. Yeah, right. And have you have you received any kind of negative criticism for it? Um, yeah, I I actually go looking for it. You're right. Uh, from the You're right one people. of those. No, from the right people. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, I, somebody who can tell me what I'm doing wrong mm-hmm. is worth a lot to me. Yeah. Um, because I'm still learning. And I hopefully always will be. Yeah. Um, so, you know, other creators, I've gone to them and said, thank you. That's nice that you said you liked it. What didn't you like? What what part could be better? And I've, I've got some good feedback that's oh, hopefully going to help me in the future and make the book better. Oh, cool. So not, nothing particularly hateful then? No, not, not hateful. I mean, if it was just hateful, then it wouldn't be useful as feedback. Yeah, I suppose. Um yeah, anything born of hate, that's directed at me, not the book. Mm. Wow, that's that's heavy. <laughs> <laughs> you can't have everyone like you. No, no, you can't. What is it, 50% of the people already hate whatever it is you do straight off the bat? Mm-hmm. What's your What's your process? So you said 18 months from after you've written it. What's the process for you when you're writing? So you you're writing and are you do you do you jot along do you maybe kind of tinker with some panels or whatnot like um, well it helps that I think in comics mm-hmm. um, I've never really tried my hand at writing prose or or writing a screenplay I just don't think in those terms yeah I, I find if my if I did try to write a screenplay, it would be a little staccato because I'm thinking in panels. Yep. I'm thinking in still moments. Depending on what I'm writing as well. So Talgard's a little different. With it being four pages, you kind of have to hit your point and that's all you're doing. Mm. Um, it's almost like just Which writing. I think is harder. It, well, it, it can be. In, in some senses, it's much harder. Mm. But in other senses, it's it's easier. The... The idea with the Talgard story, I'll either try and put him in a, a situation that I don't know how he'll get out of and get him out of it, mm-hmm. or I'm. it's a story with a point. Yeah. So another one in there is about uh, euthanasia. So there's a story in there about mercy killing. Yeah. That's not about putting the character in a situation that he can't get out of. That's about putting in the character in a hard situation and yeah. seeing what they do. Those sorts of ones are easy enough to write for a given value of easy. Just sorry to cut you off, but there's a lot of stories in here that even though the point is made, I'm reading it and I'm going, oh, I'd really like just a, another couple of pages just to finish up yeah. on on what's going on. I would have I would have liked to have seen just a little bit more interaction after the fact. Yeah. To a certain extent, that means I've done my job. If you care what happens to the, the character after the, the last panel on the last page, then I've absolutely done my job. Um, and I stopped that story at the right time because if I kept it going, then you wouldn't care about it. 
But it would have been resolved, Gary. It would have been resolved. <laughs> I wouldn't be worrying it, about it. It, it. I mean, you know, <laughs> two sides of the same coin is what <laughs> yeah, that yeah, is, isn't yeah. it? Um, yeah, but so, you know, the the four-page stories, the writing process is is that. You, yeah. you take your core and then you, you chip away what doesn't fit in four pages. Mm-hmm. It's very similar for a much longer story because you still need your core. So you need your for want of a less wanky term, your thesis. Yeah. Um, thematically, what is this story about? And it's so much harder to stick to your theme in 90 pages yeah. than it is in, in four. And I've got a, a few 90-page books in the, in the works at the moment because they take longer than four pages. <laughs> yeah. uh, they are on their way, but... Um, the process for that's a lot harder. You've got to plan out each scene, decide which scenes aren't actually building towards your main point that you're making thematically mm-hmm. and get rid of them, even though sometimes they're the most fun scenes or your babies. You've got to be able to take your babies out and get rid of them. Kill your darlings. Exactly. Exactly right. Um, I, I think, though, one of the the hardest things for me to learn as a writer was it's not killing your darlings for no reason. You've got to know why you're killing your darlings. And for me, my darlings always die because they don't fit the theme of the story. Well, sometimes I think, you know, people in in various forms of entertainment media have have toggled between the two. I always think it's, you know, sometimes a uh, senseless death sometimes just as impactful as a death that has that is full of meaning. Mm. I mean, death's a bit like that though, isn't it? Sometimes yeah. death just happens and there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just a, a drunk driver or a, an aneurysm that nobody saw coming and, mm-hmm. and it's meaningless. It's, yeah. it's an unfortunate truth of life is that sometimes it ends meaninglessly, mm. even though I'm not sure that's a word. M- meaninglessly? Yeah, it ends without meaning. you know what you're a writer you make that's what that's your job you make words up man that's right yeah (laughs) me and old shakespeare (laughs) you're listening to graphic nature we'll return right after this short message hey thanks for listening hope you're enjoying the show uh we are all over social media well not all over it but we've got a few we've got facebook twitter and instagram please jump on facebook and like us if you're enjoying the show as well as following us on instagram and twitter you can find all the details on the website graphicnature.media. Thanks very much. This has been a Graphic Nature public service announcement. When you're looking, let's say, when you're looking for uh, for something to be entertaining, what type of stories do you gravitate towards? It's a very good question with no real answer. Depends on my mood, mm-hmm. um, as sort of all things do. But I need there to be a good story there. Yeah, I need there to be an underlying sort of reason in a way, doesn't have to be a good reason. You know, like I love watching Dude, Where's My Car? It's fun. <laughs> it's a stupid, stupid movie and it's fun. And There's some really good moments in that. Yeah, in there that is. Movie. You know, like it, it doesn't have to be intellectual humour. Mm. Um, it doesn't have to be Shakespeare. Yeah. But I, I, I prefer anything that I'm watching to have a story. Uh, and I prefer anything that I'm watching or reading or anything to have a plot. So I prefer plot-driven 
stories rather than character-driven yep. stories, which takes me out a lot of uh, quote-unquote literature yep. at the moment because that tends to be character-driven and plot is non-existent. Yep. You know, plot is a four-letter word in, in current literature, but I, I like plot. Yeah. And so w- with with that in mind, are there any particular any particular let's say writers or 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 comics nowadays that you're really kind of loving that uh, somehow play on your mind when you're doing your work? Mm-hmm. Uh, Terry Pratchett, mm-hmm. I love his work. Um, it always plays on my mind because he has a fantasy setting, but he has the most human characters. Yeah. And he got a lot better as a writer as he got older as well. Um, Man was writing from 17, but the early Discworld books, which were 15, 20 years after that, were much, much better than his early books. Mm -hmm. And the middle Discworld books, which were another 10 years after that, were incredibly much, much better than the early Discworld books. And then the books he was writing towards the end, except maybe the last one or two when he had the Alzheimer's, were... um, were much much better again yeah um that's something i aspire to just to be better than i was yeah yeah um so that his his work definitely plays on my mind um there's there's a lot that that sort of um that you take in um in some respects a writer's job is to to bring in as many influences as possible Mm -hmm. and churn them through their own mind and see what comes out and what about with comics? Where did, where did your let's say, where did your schooling of the discipline? Where did that? Where did that come from? Um, in the god awful wastelands of Marvel in the nineteen nineties, <laughs> <laughs> that that was where I started. Ah, the wastelands. I've oh. not heard it described like that. Don't get me wrong, and I love that description. Yeah, there, there were some gems in there. There definitely there, was, but they were fewer and farther. There between. was a lot of shit. Yeah, there was. Um, I didn't know any better, but coming out of that, sort of towards the tail end of the nineties, started getting recommendations of, oh, you should read um, Walt Simonson's Thor. Go back and read that. Mm-hmm. You should read uh, Frank Miller's Daredevil. Go back and read that. That was when my schooling really started. Yeah, yeah. When, when people were recommending specific runs from specific creators, that's when I was, yeah, when I was there. And how did you use that? You know, it's one thing to read a book and go, wow, that's really well well done. And then transferring that to how you're going to work. Yeah, it's, um, I guess it starts off with the idea of, ah, they get it. Which is which is great, and thinking up to the point of ah, they get it. You know, Frank Miller gets Daredevil. He understands that it's about the Catholic guilt. And yep. he gets it. Walt Simonson understands Thor. He understands that it's mythology. It's it's bombastic. It's he gets it. Mm-hmm. It's another thing to be able to step back and see what the it is that other people have missed that they've got, and try to apply that to whatever story you're doing. Yeah. I'm going to fail, I'm sure, more often than not. And the the longer I work in comics, the less I want to work on other people's characters. Right. Weirdly. But So I don't know whether I'll be called upon to get it for any character. And, and But if you, if you were? If I were 
what, what would I pick? Mm. Oh, Fantastic Four. Really? Yeah. Ex- explain, oh, explain. Is, is that just a, that was what uh, I was, you know, that's what kind of first got me into comics. Is that what that is? Uh, no, no, it's not. Because I've always had a problem with Fantastic Four and I've never been able to stick with it. I, I, I read it, I, I could give it a go, try mm-hmm. it again, no. Yeah, no, fair enough. I mean, what 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 is it about it that that I, to hasn't be on- stuck with you? To be honest, I, I I don't know what it. It just feels. It doesn't have. I, you know, I can't expl- I can't even explain it. And uh, the reason I ask you is, I was introduced to comics when I was in in primary school back in the eighties. Yes. And over time, my gateway was seeing Transformers comics at the local newsagent. That blew my mind. And then for a few, so I just kept rereading the 10 issues that I had and they're tattered, but I've still got them. Then later on, I started reading uh, Spider-Man. Now I knew Spider-Man from the cartoons and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But even now I think, you know, if anyone was to ask me, my favorite comic book character, let's say for instance, out, out of the two, major two, Marvel and DC, I would pick Spider-Man because I think he's the epitome, he's the everyman that is constantly trying to battle everything that's against him and it's like everything is against him. Yeah. And, and I've, you know, for me, that battle of trying to make everything work is probably the most universal. Hmm. I've always had a problem with Batman. I've always had a problem with Superman. Uh, no, I mean, look, so here's the thing. If I was a DC guy, mm-hmm. I'd be reading Superman because Superman and the Fantastic Four have a very similar core. Right, okay, explain. So, Fantastic Four is a story about a family, mm-hmm. first and foremost. Okay. It's a family story. That's your basis for it. Um, the fact that they do all these weird and wonderful superhero exploring space things is secondary to the fact that they're a family. And that's kind of what uh, Superman is, to a certain extent. There's your Lois Lane, your Perry White, your, yeah. your uh, Jimmy Olsen wholesome family feel yeah yeah you know seen through the 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 filter of 1930s us versus the fantastic four is 1960s us but they've got that core family sort of uh feel to it Mm -hmm. and the thing that they really have in common though is optimism about the future so fantastic four is about making the world a better place uh on a more sort of um, a larger scale level on a societal level, whereas Spider-Man's about making your neighbourhood better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they're both um, inherently optimistic, but it's just the scale's different between mm. Fantastic Four and Spider-Man. Yeah, right. Superman works on the same scale. It's about optimism for the future, making the world a better place. Fantastic Four would be making the universe a better place, making everything better. Yeah, right. Um, Never looked at it that way. That's that's what I think it is. Yeah, yeah. In quotation marks, uh, which some people get and some people don't get it. But yeah, optimism for the future and family connections, human connections. And so, with all that in mind, how would you how would you then interpret that in your work? Because if that's the it that you're looking for, or that yeah, yeah. So I mean, look. As I said, as I get further and further along in my career, the less and less I want to do this. But my first arc of Fantastic Four would be six issue ro- six issues long. Mm-hmm. Each issue would be one relationship in the family. 
mm-hmm. Reed and Ben, Ben and Sue, Ben and Johnny, Reed and Sue, Reed and Johnny, Johnny and Sue. Six relationships that are kind of archetypal. You can almost fit any human relationship into those six. You've mm-hmm. got best friends, you've got spouse, you've got a uh, sibling relationship, you've got an almost parental relationship yep. between Reed and Johnny. Mm-hmm. That almost any, there's a um, rivalry between yeah. Ben and Johnny. Every relationship, especially if you include Doom as the fifth member and you start getting some antagonistic relationships in there, um, or rather every positive relationship between people can be found in those four characters. Well, I find Doom, particularly what... Uh, was it Bendis? Mm-hmm. They did something really interesting with him a couple of years ago where, oh. they, where they turned Doom into a, into a, uh, a good character. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, he was he was no, when they turned him to what was it Iron Man? They turned him into Iron Man, and he was doing all this he was doing all this really good stuff, and like everyone was freaking out. See, as far as Doom's concerned, though, he was always a good character. He's a gr- like if we're talking just characters, he's a great character. I oh think. yeah, yeah. But I mean, he was always a good person, right? Doom doesn't think that the world should be fascist. He thinks it should be a meritocracy. And of course he'll be in charge because <laughs> he's, he's doomed. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, he, he's not a fascist. Even though he runs his country like a fascist state, yeah. he's not. He's a meritocracist. And anyone who deserves a place would have a place in yeah. his government. But yeah, that's, that's the core of that book mm-hmm. to me is those relationships. I would have six stories that just focus on the relationships to start with. Right. And, and let's say, for instance... That's not on the table. How do you work your? How do you work that element into the stuff that you write with your characters? Um, well, it depends on the character. Each character has their own sort of reason for being. See, I don't think that that is the reason how I would write Hulk, for example. Hulk is about suppressing our own animal nature. Mm-hmm. So, if I was to write, uh, you know, a, a Jekyll and Hyde figure. Hulk, I wouldn't be applying those same principles to that character. Uh, I think you've got to approach each character on their own merits, what they are, what they're for, and what they can do best. Are you working on any other projects at the moment? lots. Anything you can talk about? I've got more Talgard coming, Mm -hmm. so that's definitely happening. Um, I've also got another book uh, with James Brower, who was the artist on uh, The Deep. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, called Lawless, which is, um, it's exploring some mythology, but mostly it's about masculinity, mm-hmm. what it is to be a man. Yeah, so I've got a, one of my characters in the book is a blind man. Nice. Who's uh, not quite sure how he fits in with our traditional views of masculinity. So there's one particular scene where he's in a bar and his best friend's getting into a bar fight. And his mere presence as a blind man is enough to de-escalate the situation and the meathead at the bar who was causing trouble sort of throws his hands up and says, oh, I don't want to be part of this anymore once a blind man appears. And it's not like this blind character particularly wants to get into bar fights, but he'd like to be respected enough so that one could happen somewhere around him without everybody, you know, thinking he's made of glass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know that's something that happens fairly on early on. And how do you how do you get like as a writer? Mm. How do you in particular get 
uh, into the mindset of of writing a blind a blind man from you know from your perspective? Uh, for this particular character, what I did was um, I watched a lot of YouTube videos from a, a blind YouTuber, yeah, right. uh, the blind film critic, and he does uh, so. He's a he's a DJ actually. That's his day job, mm-hmm. radio jockey on a you know hit station somewhere in the US. Yeah, right. But what he also does is he'll review films uh, as a blind man and say, "Oh, this film was very easy to follow." It was mostly dialogue driven. Wow. You know, or this film was impossible. I had no idea what was going on because, you know, the the sound design was awful. And so it just, it made me think about the world in a different way. And as a writer, that's what you want. You Mm. want to start seeing things from someone else's perspective. Yeah. And then he branched out into sort of videos about being blind and what it's like and what, what happens in his world. And that sort of paired up in my mind with ideas that I was kicking around about a story about masculinity. Well, it's a it's a huge topic to uh, to be talking about. Why I mean it's, do, it's, do you it, honestly think it is or do you just feel you have to say that you think it is? Cuz I think masculinity is the easiest thing in the world for us men to talk about. Is I, it? I, look, I'm I'm a straight white man, right? If there's anything I can talk about, it's masculinity. <laughs> oh no, I'm not saying you can't write about it. No, I'm no, just but, saying like in the, the scope because there are so many definitions of it. Um, well, okay, so there are, and you know, being the arrogant person that I am, I want to tell you all about my go my for it, go. The floor is no, yours. no, but that's what the story is about. Yeah, yeah. This is me telling you my version of masculinity, mm. and it's not getting into a bar fight, and it's not even being okay with not being in a bar fight. Mm. It's about doing the right thing yeah. regardless of the consequences and everything else is just window dressing. Yeah. That's my version of masculinity. I'm sure you've got a different one. Mine is different. Mine is different. Yeah. For me, a lot of the time is wh- what is generally portrayed as masculine, as far as I'm concerned, is a bit of a, is a pretty shit. Uh, and, and I mean, on the whole, uh, being macho and all that kind of stuff, you know, really just goes like... You know, only douchebags do that kind of shit. Yeah. The way I take what you just explained is that's hu- that's just that's a humanist perspective. That's how everybody should treat everybody else. Just do the right thing. Don't be a prick. Don't be an asshole. Yes. Right. And I suppose I haven't thought about it enough to give you an exact. This is what I think masculinity is. I know what I don't think should be. Mm. Um, and that's probably about as best as I can do. No, that, I mean, without that's, going that's into it, very fair actually, because it's like um, that argument about the difference between art and pornography. I know it when I see it. Yeah, and you know, bad masculinity when you see it. Oh, I see it. Yeah, and you see it. I see it all the time. I see it on the road. I see it on the side of the street. I see it in a bar. I see, you know, and I've seen it throughout my entire life. Yeah. I mean, one of the things as well that brought me to this book is, though, there was one instance where I didn't know when I saw it, which is I was quite an old guy. I was well into my 20s before I realised how much in movies it had been internalised in me that women were the prize. You win the day, you get the girl. Like, I was paying bills and things before I realised how messed up that was. You know, yeah, life has a great way of teaching you things that uh, yeah that counter to to, to what you've to that seen. Narrative, yeah. yeah, but 
but I, like I, the narrative didn't even register. And I felt like I was a person who spent a lot of time thinking about movies and mm-hmm. thinking about books and thinking about the media that we consume in general. It just hadn't occurred to me how much the idea that a woman was a prize was kind of there. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, I think we need to talk about what is masculinity and what isn't. And I think that we're all very well sort of credentialed to be able to do that because we all live in this world and, yeah, we all get to say, don't do that. Not good enough, yeah. 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 How critical are you of your own writing? Incredibly (laughs) hypercritical. Hopefully, though, constructively so. As I said when I was talking about Terry Pratchett, I want to get better. I don't want to reach a plateau and just write good stories. I want to write better stories. Um, I want whatever I write next to be better than whatever I wrote last. And I can't do that without looking at my own stories and thinking about them. Part of that is surrounding yourself with people who know stories and know what they're talking about and can can spot what you've done well and what you've done poorly. Part of that is being able to say, oh, I did that well, because unless you identify the good, you can't build on it. Unless you identify the bad, you can't remove it. Um, so, yeah, I'm incredibly critical of my own work, but I would hope in a reasonably healthy way. <laughs> yeah, right. Not, not in a self-loathing <laughs> way, because that's not going to help anyone. No, 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 particularly you. Mm, exactly. Have you ever have you ever entertained the notion of of picking up the pencil and and drawing? Yes, I absolutely have. You know, in, in the same way that writing is a skill you can improve, I know that you know art is a skill that I could obtain and I could improve. I'm just awful at it, like <laughs> abysmally bad at this, and and I don't love it enough to put the hours in that would be necessary to be good. I love telling a story. Uh, I don't love drawing. I love looking at a good drawing. (laughs) I love looking at a beautifully constructed comics page where, you know, the the artist directs your eye around the page like they're a a maestro. I can appreciate it. I just know I'll never be able to do that. And are you a designated space kind of person? Do you need your, uh, you know, your your two sugars in your cup of tea at the side of... On the side of your laptop uh, with the fern facing the right way? Um, <laughs> or are you, I'm, a, I'm just going to go to the cafe. I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle. Uh, I need uh, a lack of toddlers running around. That helps, <laughs> like you wouldn't believe. Uh, but no, I don't need Jupiter to be ascending in the, in the <laughs> declination of, of Saturn before everything lines up perfectly and I can write. And you, your foray into comics... Uh, and reading voraciously and then seeing, you know, how people have done it right. I'm going to draw my own. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write my own. I want to be a writer of comics. Where, what was, what was the pin that um, popped so the idea? Anyone who's writing comics who claims not to be arrogant is lying. Every single last one of us are arrogant because because there's a lot of them. There, there are a lot of us, and every single one of us think that what we have to say is so important that you should pay me money to hear it. If that's not arrogance, then I don't know what is. When did uh, your your arrogance kick in? Well, I've got something to say. Yeah, and I I want to say it, and I think this is the the best medium 
to say anything in. So I think it, it developed slowly where it, it sort of dawned on me that this idea wasn't going to go away. Right. Like, it, you know, when I was in my early 20s, I didn't actually do any writing at all. Um, I was trying to be a computer programmer. But the idea that I wanted to do it never left my head for more than a week. Right, wow. It was always something I'd come back around to. And I think eventually I realised that I may as well start now. Right. I, I mean, I wish I could point to a crystallising moment, but there wasn't one. It was just... Doesn't have to be? Slow progression of my own arrogance. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I'd call it arrogance. Um, it is, though. I mean... Under what sort of circumstances can somebody say, you'll sit down and you'll listen to me and this is what I've got to say and I'm going to say it and you're going to pay me for the privilege without just that little hint, but, the little frisson of arrogance. Yeah, but, but see, I, you know, as a, a storyteller... Yes. ...doesn't, like, you're not, de- you're not demanding the money. No. Right? You're saying, you know, so, I, I, you know, that's where I have the problem. You're like going, I'm going to write this book. I'm going to create this piece of art. And I'm going to put it forward, and whoever so, whomever so thinks that he's worth their time hmm. will then invest in it, right? So I, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I agree with your arro- with your label of arrogance. I think it's just a matter of you have something within you that you need to share. Yeah, like I, I, I do respect those artists who say, "Oh, I need to share this with the world," but I think that's just a really polite way of wrapping around words around the concept of. I mean, arrogance is not necessarily a completely and inherently bad word. No, I suppose you're right. We, we tend to attach it to aggression. It's not an aggressive arrogance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, yeah, I think I'm good. And and I think I'm good enough so that what I have to say is worth you hearing. Well, you know, that's arrogance, confidence. Yeah, confidence, yeah, confident. arrogance. <laughs> they're, they're, they're in the same sort of family, yeah, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Well, I'm going to have to now rethink what I think about arrogance and <laughs> confidence and masculinity. Jesus Ego Christ, is not a dirty word. <laughs> how does the how does the festival circuit go for you? Like how 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 do you how do you feel sitting there in the booth and uh, you know selling selling your wares at home? I feel very much at home. But conventions are great because comics creators sit on our own almost exclusively and um, conventions give us a chance to get out into the real world and in front of real people and talk about comics and now being underneath the banner of gestalt comics uh, what's that like versus doing something off your own bat at a smaller convention what's the difference not not as much as people would think gestalt basically is 80 percent wolfgang he does great book design and He's a great editor, so there's going to be a, a sort of a minimum guarantee of quality in a Gestalt book. That doesn't mean you're going to love it. It just means there'll be a minimum guarantee of quality. So there's a little bit of expectation, I guess, that comes with that. But that's not a bad thing if people have heard of you. I'd rather have expectation than trying to get people's attention. And so in, in, in that respect, the, the two experiences from a creator's perspective sitting at, let's say, Home Cooked or Indie Comic Con yeah. versus sitting at Supernova or one of those places. 
you know, how are you received in, in, in both kind of situations? Oh, um, I guess the, the difference is the crowd. So it's Supernovas and Oz Comic Cons and the, the larger sort of pop culture cons, the crowd is a lot more disproportionately non-comics people. You, you have a lot more chance of making a sale to somebody that you would never otherwise normally make a sale to at one of those. You tend to ratchet down your sales pitch a little bit to be a bit more lowest common denominatory. You know, hey, you like cars? Come and have a look at this yeah, sort yeah. of thing. Uh, whereas it's something like Home Cooked or Indie Comic Con or those sort of ilk. Yep. Anyone who walks in the door is into comics. Anybody who has come out, come down, they know what they're looking for mm-hmm. and you can sort of engage in the in a bit more of a personal, hey, we both love comics yeah, kind yeah. of way. Um, it makes it a lot more fun as an event because... You know, it's my people. Yeah, I suppose it's a lot easier actually not even having to sell. No. You can just have no, a chat. And yeah, exactly. And if somebody asks you what the book's about, you can actually tell them rather than give them the, the prepackaged spiel. Of, yeah. yeah. Or, you know, if you like Lord of the Rings and... Yeah. And, yeah. This is <laughs> the Matrix meets Die Hard or whatever the hell it is. <laughs> yeah. that I guess stop looking at digital... Yeah, we, we do actually already have... Um, so all of the Talgard books are available online at garyproudly.com. Mm. There you go, fit that in there, including a few that are going to be in the next book. So nice. if you're interested, you can read ahead. Gestalt does uh, release a lot of books through Comixology. People are always going to want physical books. Though. Yeah. For the foreseeable future. Uh, for, anyway. for the very foreseeable future, especially like quality physical books. Yeah. And, you know, Wolfgang takes a lot of care on paper stock and card stock for the covers and making sure that the printing onto the you know the mat or the gloss uh, the color is appropriate and things are not going to get washed out a lot of care goes into that so people are always going to love the physical sort of tactile yeah yeah, um I, i kind of to a certain extent see reading comics online a bit like window shopping you know uh the number of times where i've read a book online on buy something on comiXology and then if I enjoy it I physically buy it yeah yeah and read it properly <laughs> read it properly well you know <laughs> sorry not, no, not, not I just think it's funny I not, ask everybody I ask everybody I, I ask everybody the, the, the digital question because it's really fascinating to me I much like yourself I actually can't read digitally I find it really kind of weird and there's and and I I attribute it I attribute that to history mm. the only reason is because everything i've read is is uh is a book yeah and i w- i i imagine that there will come a time where newer generations will only ever read via via a screen mm. and in that respect it would just feel normal to them but again you know it's for me it's looking picking up Talgard's book flipping through it feeling the air on my face as i flip through uh, you know, seeing the grade of the paper, feeling the paper in my hands. It's, yeah. it's a visceral experience. W- reading something on a screen, all, all of that kind of evaporates and all I'm left with is an image that I'm now not able to connect with. So it takes me out of the story. And it's yeah. really unfortunate because there are a lot of, there's a lot of good work done online. And for me, looking at some of the, the four-panel kind of 
you know, done in done in one kind of uh, cartoons are un- they work really well. Yeah. Online, they work so well online because it's a bang bang bang, you're done. Done. Yeah. But reading a story, a thirty page, forty page story, it it can be j- a jarring experience for me. Part of what I find, well, the two things. The first one is I'm not sure how much I can disconnect that most of the time in my life a computer screen is work. Yeah. Um, There's that too. So I, I don't know how much, you know, for say my son, when he grows up, computer screen will be play as much as it's work. So maybe he'll enjoy comics in that way, hopefully. And the other one is that a, a page of comics is to be viewed as a whole to me. Yeah. And most computer screens go horizontal, not not yeah. vertical. Whereas a comics page, what it should be to my mind, is very much a vertical up and down thing. And yeah. You should, like I, I mentioned briefly earlier, a good artist can direct your eye around a page, but they can't do that if you have to scroll. Like as soon as you have to scroll, you you're taken out of what the artist is doing. Yeah, to you. I, and I, I think there are a few. A few cats out there, some artists and some digital comics uh, creators that are are using that. And so what they're now doing is you find they're working the screen to the panel and they make the panel and so they're thinking about it a different way. Yeah. And And so you're altering how the medium works to fit the screen, which I think, which I, which I don't think is a bad thing. Not at all. And I suspect I would enjoy a comic like that where it's designed to be read horizontally Mm -hmm. much more. Yeah. Um, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, there are, there are greater minds than mine working on that. Gary, (laughs) let me just say that I'm going to finish off with one, uh, one more question. What do you think could be done to help Australian creators get their work overseas and around the planet? That's a very good question. This may be a little controversial, but I think a mindset shift. I think a mindset shift of realising that comics is not a zero-sum game and you doing well doesn't mean I'm doing worse. If you do well, then that's great. That means you can introduce me to an editor at, at Dark Horse or, or whomever or wherever. I think if we all shift this mindset of combative towards complementary and helping each other... Mm-hmm. I think that will help more Australians overseas. It's interesting because there have been a few cats who have who've made the jump. Mm, more and more all the time. Yeah. Um, I can think of two or three that I learned about recently who have gone over and, and started making US comics. Uh, Christoph Bogax, although I'm sure I've just butchered the pronunciation of his name there. Uh, he, he won't hear this anyway. Yeah, well... <laughs> Recently got something uh, in at Dark Horse. Um, And there was somebody else I met this weekend, and I'm blanking on the name, but they've got an image book out. Nice. An Australian guy. Do you reckon we'll ever have a commercial industry here? Oh, it's possible. I remember speaking to Colin Wilson before I actually properly met him years and years ago. Uh, He was sitting with Bruce Moutard at Mm -hmm. at a meet somewhere. And I said something to that ilk, and he chastised me, <laughs> <laughs> which is which is fine. Like I didn't take it personally. Yeah, a chastisement from Colin is fine. It's, <laughs> it's, it's nothing personal. Well, you know what? As long as, well, you know, he spoke directly to me. So yeah, as an yeah, elder statesman, I was I took that as a as a badge of honor. I was like, yeah. he spoke to me. <laughs> but, but um, but yeah, he he was very adamant. No, it'll never happen in Australia. And and I get from a perspective of population. But I think nowadays, you know, as as much as 
people might want to disparage what um, Disney have done with Marvel and what DC are trying to do with all of their films. I think that has done more for comics in the last 10, 15 years yeah. on, 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 on a small level. Well, I, I mean, with all, all respect to Colin, he, he's right that we'll never have an American market and he's right that we'll never have the direct market in the US style thing. Mm-hmm. But they're small potatoes when it comes to comics. Um, in the greatest the, sense, yeah. The biggest seller in, in graphic novels is uh, Raina with her like scholastic middle school yeah. books. We can absolutely have an industry of that. And if we do have that, then 10 years from now, those people buying books at a scholastic book fair will be graduating into wanting to read something a bit more mature. And so I think we just have to direct how we're going about it to get a, an industry um, because you need sort of mass market appeal yeah, and uh, adults don't tend to try new things. No, Kids they don't. Do. But we'll, we'll we can work on that, Gary. We can work we on can. that. We we can all work on that. We can and uh, <laughs> Australia's uh, comic book community can can definitely work something out. I think yeah. uh, that was a spectacular answer, and thank you very much for coming in and talk to us. No, thank you. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thanks very much, Gary. That was the end of this episode of Graphic Nature. Thanks for listening. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. Please rate and review the show on whatever podcast service you use. It'll be greatly appreciated. If you have any thoughts regarding the show, feel free to send an email to feedback at graphicnature.media. You can catch me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. For more information about the show, visit Graphic Nature on the web by typing in your handy web browser or search engine graphicnature.media. See you in two weeks, and uh, thanks heaps. Credits! Written, produced, edited, and presented by Zoran Ilyevsky. Audio consultation and additional production. Archie Cuthbertson, Dan Moore. Credits announcer, Simon Winkler. Theme character voices, Zoran Ilyevsky. Audio excerpts of Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency, Wortham versus Gaines on Decency Standards, used courtesy of New York City Municipal Archives. You've been listening to Graphic Nature the podcast.